Well, good morning again, Sedfast. Good to see you and be with you again. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are working our way through 1 Corinthians and coming near the home stretch here towards the end of the book. We have just a couple chapters left, and um, this morning we're looking at uh, part one of um, really verses 1 through 11, 15, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. We're looking at the importance of the resurrection. That's the title for this lesson, the importance of the resurrection. I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, which says this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which, you also, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures." and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." We're coming to this uh, section here, and and it's a new section in the book of Corinthians. Paul starts a new section. We see that because he begins the words, now I make known to you. Sometimes some versions translate this as, moreover, brethren. He's moving on to a new section. It's a signal to to us that this is, he's dealing with a new issue. And the issue he's dealing with, and remember much of the book of Corinthians is dealing with misconceptions or wrong attitudes or wrong behavior that the Corinthians had. And what he's really getting into now is the issue that there were some among them who evidently believed that there was going to be no future resurrection. They didn't believe that bodies would be raised from the dead in the future. And um, so we are going to walk, take our time walking through this chapter. We're not going to rush through it because uh, I was thinking about last week and the week before we were talking about the gospel, and I had these quotes as we were talking about the resurrection and its part in the gospel message. I, I quoted John Calvin who said, the resurrection is the most important article of our faith. And I think if you ask most Christians what the most important article of the faith is, they wouldn't immediately say the resurrection. Or I also quoted uh, Charles Spurgeon who said this, quote, the resurrection of our divine Lord is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Perhaps I might more accurately call it the keystone of the arch of Christianity, for if that fact could be disproved, the whole fabric of the gospel would fall to the ground. And so when I was thinking about those, and I was thinking about this subject that we're getting into with the... the uh, 
the, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. I said, let's take our time uh, going through this. And um, because when you think of celebrating the resurrection, what day do you typically think of? Easter. We think of, of celebrating the resurrection. And really, uh, nowhere in the scripture does it tell us that we memorialize the resurrection of Christ once a year. Uh, I think early Christians, uh, uh, they, they hijacked uh, a pagan holiday that was to the Babylonian love goddess Ishtar, who came down from heaven in an egg. And uh, so uh, we, we, they took that and they said, well, let's, instead of breaking open an egg, let's break open the tomb and let's celebrate the resurrection. And I'm grateful for Easter. I think it's a, it's a fine it's a resurrection. To, to, I think there's no problem with memorializing the resurrection of Christ. In fact, what's surprising is that when we think of a day where we celebrate the resurrection, the first thing that comes to mind is Easter. But in the scripture, the, first, the, the day that was set to celebrate the resurrection was Sunday. The early church memorialized the resurrection every Sunday. They got up every Sunday and they thought, this is the day that the Lord rose from the grave. I was thinking about this this morning, and of course, this has been on my mind this week, and, and, and this morning, I, it was crisp and clear and, and, and beautiful, and, and, um, and, I, and I thought to myself, uh, I wonder if it was like this, the morning that they were walking to the grave and actually discovered the Lord, and, and of course, that's probably, it was probably, <laughs> probably wasn't like that at all. It was probably humid, and uh, you know, I don't know, what, it's like in April, it's probably stray cats all over Israel, you know, or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what was going on, but, but I'm trying to identify it. I'm trying to think about it. And I think that, that part of the benefit of studying this in detail should enhance every Sunday for us, that we really are memorializing the resurrection of Christ. Um, the fact that for nearly 2,000 years, Christians have, have memorialized Christ on every Sunday. Uh, in Acts 20, verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week... When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So tonight, no. Um, so, but we, th- we think about that first day of the week. There are several passages in the scripture that speak about the Lord's day or the first day of the week, the day that was the same day he rose from the grave. Near the end of the first century, one of the early church fathers wrote this about the first day of the week. He says, quote, we keep it with joyfulness the day also on which Jesus rose again from the dead. And early in the second century, another church father, Ignatius, wrote this, quote, let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's day as a festival, the resurrection day, the queen and chief of all days. So ever since the Christians first met, that first day of the week has been a special day of celebration because it has been the day that Christ rose from the grave. We think about this, we think about the fact that Christ conquered death, and he did it from the other side of the grave. He was raised from the dead. This should impact our life. Um, he was crucified, dead, and buried, but God raised him, never to see death again, and we celebrate that because... Um, it, 
It's a first fruits, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in 1 Corinthians. It's a sign of things to come for us. When we think about, um, I think about the Sabbath. And, uh, you know, observant Jews go to great lengths today to observe the Sabbath. I don't know if you've read like an oven manual before, but some ovens have Sabbath mode, which I'm like, what is Sabbath mode? That sounds interesting, you know? Sabbath means seventh, seventh day of the week. Remember, God rested on the seventh day. Uh, and so, uh, but, but the observant Jews are so vigilant that they want to rest and they don't want to work that they will not open the refrigerator on the Sabbath, because if they open the refrigerator, a light comes on, and incandescent bulbs has a spark and fire, and according to their understanding, which I don't think is an accurate understanding, but they're they're not to make a fire on the Sabbath. And so turning on a light switch is work, because you create a fire, even though it's not much work. They won't touch uh, a light switch. And so there are refrigerators that have a Sabbath mode so the light doesn't come on on the Sabbath. Or that some people have installed switches that turns off the light. Or, the, or uh, oftentimes I've heard of observant Jews, will, the father will come on, on, on the day before the Sabbath, on Friday morning, I suppose, and he will unscrew the light bulb so that they can open the fridge. Forget the fact that there's a compressor. I don't know how that works. But, but, but um, uh, you've got... I'm the great lengths, and why? And this is, this is what I'm thinking about. It's because they are so serious about thinking about rest. And yet the scriptures teach us in, in, in Colossians 2, verse 17, that the Sabbath was a shadow of Christ. The Sabbath rest was intended to be a future, a shadow of a greater rest, and that's the rest we have in Christ. And so Christ fulfills the Sabbath, which is why we're not meeting in a synagogue on the seventh day of the week. But just because we don't observe the Sabbath on a Saturday, Friday night to Saturday, because we're not observing the Sabbath, I think sometimes dispensationalists good dispensationalists like ourselves who say that uh, there's discontinuity between the Old Testament law and the New Testament practice, we don't think about the Lord's Day as the Lord's Day. We just get up as though it's like any other day. And yet, we come here and you'll find that... um, we have this, this um, uh, emphasis every Sunday on the resurrection, and we miss it. The songs that we sang this morning spoke about the resurrection. Listen to the songs that we'll sing. I don't know what songs we're going to be singing in the main service next, next hour, but you can be sure you will find the resurrection in them um, because this is something we should be singing about. Listen to the words of um, a hymn written by Robert Lowry. He says, death cannot keep his prey Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus, my Lord. And up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. 
He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. So the resurrection is important for our thought life. And, and I think we're going to see benefits from this because we're going to see not only the benefit of joy and excitement, um, but when you think what was going on in Corinth, the reason we have this is there were some who were saying, yeah, we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe that there, w- that there is such a thing as a resurrection. And that was, was common in Greek thought and Greek culture. And Paul was fighting against this, and there's no greater chapter. If 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. When you think resurrection, come to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in verse 12, skip down to verse 12, he says, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And that's the key issue that's going on here. He's not so much trying to give a proof that Jesus did rise from the dead, He's trying to speak against those who deny that Jesus rose from the, from the grave. And, and, and the Greeks would laugh at that. Greek philo- philosophers thought that um, there was no such thing as a physical bodily resurrection, that there would never be, because they believed that man inwardly, his spirit was good, but it was the body that was evil. And so when death came, they believed the spirit would be released from the body. And so the idea that the body would ever somehow be rejoined to the spirit um, Uh, Plato said the body is a prison and man should escape that prison. There was a group known as the Stoics. They taught that the deity, the greatest deity was made of fire and then he put a small spark in everyone's heart and that the goodness or everything, and that's where the goodness was from, but everything else was evil. And these are some of the philosophers that Paul was speaking to. And, And last week we looked at Acts chapter 17 and we talked about his gospel presentation in Athens. Corinth is not far from Athens. A lot of the same philosophies would have been prevalent there. But in Acts 17, verse 18, it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others says, He seems to be, others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So they were confused by this guy who taught about the resurrection, the resurrection of the body. And so. Um, uh, it was ludicrous. But besides, besides the benefit of, okay, we're going to focus on the resurrection, we're going to be working through 1 Corinthians 15, and I understand, Pastor, you're telling me that this should cause more joy in my life, that I should get up, especially on Sunday morning, Saturday night, I should be thinking about, hey, I wonder what it would have been like going to bed with the, you know, that uh, you know, second day heavy hearts with Jesus dead, you know? And I wonder what it would have been like coming to the tomb and thinking about the resurrection and what does resurrection mean? But besides joy, which I think resurrection should give you a certain amount of joy, what are some other benefits of praising or lifting high or seeing the resurrection really as that keystone in the archway of all other Christian belief? What, what, is, uh, what, what is a benefit? Yes, Vindication of? Uh, Jesus, I mean, his work, everything he said is true because he rose from the dead. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a sense of, yeah, he is vindicated. He, he is who he said he was. He is God in the flesh who came down, lived a perfect life, didn't have to die, but allowed himself to be crucified. 
interesting. The tenses in our passage, we're going to be talking some of this about it, but, but um, uh, even the way Paul writes about Christ's death, in verse 3 it says that Christ died. He uses the active tense there, um, the active voice, um, and he says he, Christ died. Later he talks about other people who were dead, down in verse, is it 6 at the end, some have fallen asleep. And he uses a passive voice. He's, he talks about, I mean, he's, it just seems like he's really emphasizing Christ did this. Um, and so as we, um, and, and, and really, if, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, our entire faith does fall apart. First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 13 says, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So those, in, it, it, those people who deny a resurrection are not Christians. You cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection of the dead. You have no faith if there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, the, we're, we're, we'll be talking about this later, but we'll be talking about the fact that we believe in a future bodily resurrection, that people who die today, who are believers, that one day the graves will be open, the bodies will arise, and they will, they will join, they will be resurrected bodies. You say, what does a resurrected body look like? Well, Christ had a resurrected body. And we don't know exactly, but uh, it, it was similar to our, our body. I mean, uh, he was recognized, and he was, he, sometimes he wasn't recognized. Sometimes they thought he was a gardener, or someone else just walking on the road to Emmaus. Um, uh, some were, looked at him, and immediately they saw the holes in his, his hand and the, the hole in his side, right? Uh, he could walk through into a house that had doors that were all, all, all closed, and yet he sat down and ate fish. So he was alive on this earth with a resurrected body, and that body rose with him and is with him in heaven. It is better than our current body. It's different, but it has some similarities. And we'll, we'll, we'll have, I'm sure we'll have a lot of questions about exactly what this... The point is not to say what is our resurrected body going to be lo- like. Right now, we're just looking at the importance of resurrection. But it should help you lift that doctrine to its rightful pra- place, and it should give you a greater appreciation for the resurrection. It should help you to share with others with confidence before you die that death doesn't have the same sting for you as it does for those without Christ, that Hades will have no victory over you, and that when you are laid in a grave, you have, you are, you're still going to be very much alive, and even the body that was laid there with you will be resurrected just like your Lord's was. So let's take a look at these first 11 verses by noting three consequences of denying the resurrection that should give you a greater appreciation for the resurrection. Three consequences of denying the resurrection, either denying it by someone else who doesn't believe it altogether or denying it by just not even thinking about it. So the first consequence of denying the resurrection is if you deny the resurrection, you deny the gospel. Verses 1 and 2, you deny the gospel. Um, he says in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we see that 
the gospel here, if you deny the gospel, specifically, you deny that the gospel should be preached, you deny that it should be believed, verse 1, you believe that it, should, that it actually change, changes lives, that people stand in the gospel, and you believe that it actually saves. You deny that it actually saves. So you deny the resurrection, you deny the gospel, and that has a lot of impact. First of all, you deny that the gospel should be preached. It says, now I make known to you, brother, in the gospel which I preach to you. And in verse 2, he talks about the word which I preach to you. Now, this is especially on my heart as a preacher because I've spent the greater part of the last 25 years devoting my life to preaching the gospel and training people who will shepherd other people with the word. So this is very much part and parcel of who I am and what I want to be, and I don't have the luxury of flying under the radar like other people do because when I meet new people and they say, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. And they immediately put away their cigarette or whatever it is that's in their hand, and they... <laughs> They, uh, oh, you know, and they're like, they're like, you know, and, and, and they're like, uh, uh, oh, you know, and their voice changes, and, and there's a, you know, and, you know, I've, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a pastor. Sometimes, though, I mean, because I'm also a professor at the university, sometimes people will say, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a professor. And they say, what do you teach? Well, I train pastors. I teach theology. I teach preaching. Oh. You know, so uh, it doesn't, doesn't last very long for me, and not that, not that I'm looking for it to last very long, but what I'm trying to say is that, is that um, uh, when I, you know, when I explain to people, that they say, oh, I teach at a seminary. They're, oh, seminary, are you Catholic, or what is that? I, you know, and, and uh, you know, am I the only one here that, that, that runs into this? You, you do, yeah, so yeah. seminarians? How many seminarians do we have here? Raise your hand. I know we've got like almost a dozen uh, people who've been to seminary or in seminary. I mean, you, 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 wait, where's Inglesjord? Are you awake? Where's Inglesjord? There you are. Yeah, man. What's it like? You left the military? You came to be a pastor? What people say? What is seminary? Right. So here's the thing. Here's what I'm getting at. When you say you're a preacher of the word or you're a pastor, people typically in our society put on a veneer, a thin, polite, oh, wow, that's wonderful. (laughs) But they're hoping in their heart that you don't really believe the gospel. If they're not a Christian and they don't believe in the resurrection, they're hoping that you believe a false gospel, one that just says, I'm here to make people kinder on the earth. One that doesn't confront people about their sin and bring them to repentance because they want to hold on to their sin. They don't believe in a future resurrection. They believe that people just die and nothing else happens after that. And so when they say that's nice, they don't really mean it because they deny a resurrection. Therefore, they see no point in preaching. I'm starting to preach now. See? And don't think this just applies to pastors because it it applies to everyone who receives or believes the preaching of God's word. Take a look again at verse one. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. So anyone who calls themselves a Christian 
we'll run into the same thing. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to church. Oh, that's good for you. Good for you. Good for you. Good on you. What they mean is, I hope you don't believe any of that. Because if you really believe what the Bible teaches, I have a feeling that you don't, you don't think I'm really headed anywhere good. So this affects everyone. Um, even Paul, in these opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, recognized two types of believers. Genuine believers and false believers. A genuine believer is someone who, according to verse 1 and at the beginning of verse 2, receives the gospel of Jesus Christ, stands in that message, and then in verse 2, holds fast to the word. It's someone who's genuinely saved. A false believer, according to the end of verse 2, is someone who hears the word but does not hold fast and, in fact, believes in vain. And when people who are not believers, and I'm just going to say when I say not believers, those are people who deny the resurrection. Because if they believed in the resurrection of Christ, they would repent and turn and follow him. But they don't believe that. And therefore, those of you who are Christians, and you say you're a Christian, they're hoping you're a false Christian, that you're a Christian in name only, that you like going to church like they like being in their softball league, that's just where your friends are. That's what they're hoping. And uh, because they deny that it should be preached, that it should be believed, and thirdly, that it changes lives, which is what I'm, I'm, I'm giving for that word stand in there. It's an interesting word, the word stand at the end of verse 1. It's used more than 150 times in the New Testament, but most of the time it's used to describe the physical act of standing. For example, in John 18, 18, it says, now, now the slaves and officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, and it, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was with them, standing and warming himself. There's, it's not trying to say anything more. He's not like Peter right then is not making a stand for the faith, right? Quite the contrary. He's about to deny Christ three times. He's physically just standing by the fire, okay? But sometimes, like in English, the word stand could be meant to hold your ground or to be steadfast. Mark 3, 24 says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And it's significant that Paul uses, and we're going to get in the grammar here a little bit, but I, I, it, it comes out in this passage again and again and again. He uses the perfect tense. We don't use the perfect tense that much in, in English. And the significance is not past, present, future. It's more of the aspect of what he's trying to show is there's a completed action in the past, but he wants to draw your attention to the results of that action. So it's the results. So when he says in the perfect tense, and just look at, look at it in English, which you received, that's the, the typical default past tense, it's aorist, which you received, past tense, in which, um, sorry, which I preached to you, past tense, which you received, past, past tense, in which you also stand. And in the English, it looks like in the present tense. But the, the point is that something happened in the, in the past where you were dead, you stood, or you, you became a believer, and you are standing, and that's con- it, it's now carrying on. And the emphasis is on now. Um, 
you stand in the gospel. You hold fast to the gospel. That word hold fast in verse 2 means to keep or to retain faithfully or to continue to believe. So in other words, someone who is a genuine believer, their life changes and it continues to change. They continue to be steadfast. They're not the same person they were before. You meet them at their high school reunion, you can't believe it's the same person. Um, And so we have this, this person standing. But a false believer, though he says he's changed in time, it becomes evident that he hasn't really changed. He might make a profession of faith sometime, but he hasn't really changed. Or maybe he, he tries to clean up his life and does a bunch of things, uh, he or she, you know, early on, but then they go back to them and their life is characterized not by Christ, but by a life-dominating sin, some immorality, some kind of worldly way, loving what the world loves, not loving the word, not loving Christ. But those who are genuinely saved, there's a change where they now stand and they are steadfast and there's a difference and it continues. James describes the false believer this way. James 1.23, he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. On the other hand, says James, a true believer is someone who hears the word of the Lord and is convicted and repents and trusts in Christ. James says in in James 1.25, he says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And we know that James talks a lot about genuine faith has an evidence, a fruit of works. The works don't save you, but genuine faith will have works accompany it. There'll be a change. The apostle John also spoke of true and false believers. In John 6, verse 63, it says, It is a spirit who gives flesh. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by my father. Verse 66, John 6, 66. There's no secret implication of that. But John, I just say that to help you remember it. John 6, verse 66 says, from that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. The context tells us that you could be a disciple of Christ. Disciple, the word means learner, follower. So there were people who said, I'm learning from Christ and I'm following him. But when they stopped following him, they proved themselves to be false disciples. That's what he's pointing out. In fact, later in 1 John 2.19, John wrote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So when somebody says they're a believer and they leave the faith, there are only two possibilities. Either they're a disobedient believer who's gonna repent and come back, or they were never a genuine believer in the first place. In either case, they should expect bad 
results. God is going to discipline them if they are a believer, and if they're not, there is no hope for them for eternity. So uh, when, when you deny the gospel, you deny that the gospel should be preached, should be lived, you deny that it changes lives, and fourthly, you, in, you deny that it saves. You deny that it saves. We're still looking at this first um, uh, section, verses 1 and 2, and in verse 2 it says, by which you also are saved. This is the first consequence of denying the resurrection is you deny the gospel. But under the gospel, we see that you also deny that the gospel should be preached, should be believed, that it changes lives, and that it saves. By which you are saved. You have been saved and you are continuously being saved is what this verse is saying here. Um, You are, in the present tense, continuously saved. And you have been saved. It's, it's a passive verb, which means that it actually, uh, somebody has saved you. You can't save yourself. It's not active. And so um, we, we see that salvation would be denied. Uh, if the gospel isn't real, then you're not saved. But salvation is something that we believe in as believers, and we trust not in our own righteousness, not in our own good works. We don't have any good works of in ourselves. It's only by grace. It's what God allows in us that enables us, what God enables us to do that glorifies Him. It's His work. He deserves the glory. We don't deserve the glory. And because, and you're saying, well, he's, you're making a big deal about passive verbs. When you talk about you know, being saved, do you have to? I mean, is English grammar, Why? It's so important that I didn't save myself because if I didn't save myself, then I can't be unsaved by myself. If he saved me, not because of anything I have done, then I can't do anything to lose my salvation. And so Paul repeatedly wrote about this. And even in the tenses of verbs that he uses, he makes it clear that you are saved by God which is why he can say in Romans 8, 29, uh, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those, these he called, those he called, these he justified, those whom he justified, these he glorified. And I love it that he writes glorified in the past tense there because it's so sure that you will be glorified, I can say it's already been done. It's beautiful, Romans 8, 29 through uh, 30. Romans 8, 38, for I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Back to Corinthians. The amazing thing about the church in Corinth is that there were so many of them who their lives had been transformed, that they were genuinely saved, and you could see it. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11. It says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So there is a cleansing, there is a change, there is a washing, there is a declaration of righteousness for those who are in Christ. And, 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 And that is a testimony to the resurrection. And this is why Paul was saying, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? It, 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 you're denying salvation. And your life is saved. He's saying many of you are saved unless, in the end of verse 2, you believed in vain, which is just another way of saying unless your belief is fake. As one skeptic put it, you show me a redeemed life and perhaps I will believe in your redeemer. So... When people around you see the effect of the resurrection and what the resurrection does for you is not only gives you a joy, but it gives you a hope to the extent where you can be wronged in this world and it doesn't matter because you trust that one day you'll be with him and everything will be right. And you, you have confidence in that. And so you are able to think of others before you think of yourself in a way that is so different than the way the world does it because the world thinks of others before themselves so that others can see them think of others before themselves so they could praise them for their humility. Or when a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church sacrificially in a way that the world cannot understand. Or when a wife follows her husband so devotedly that the world cannot understand it. It's a change in your life where times where you normally would just, in your old nature, have just grabbed onto someone's throat and shaken them and said, why have you put me on hold for 45 minutes? Just hypothetically. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It bursts forth from your life like fruit from a tree. A tree that used to bear immorality, impurity, idolatry, hatred, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, heresies, drunkenness. So... It's the resurrection. It's being mindful of the resurrection that will help you to value those, those certain attributes of, of the preaching of God's word, to value believing in God's word, to value standing in God's word, or that is being changed by God's word and being saved. So that's the first consequence. If you deny the resurrection, you deny the gospel. And everyone who denies the resurrection denies the gospel. Before we move on to the second, any questions? We still have 15 minutes left here. I'm going to jump into the second. Yes? So you mentioned that if someone believes resurrection, then they would repent and be saved. But it seems like a lot of people would actually acknowledge Christ as dead, but don't actually save or don't want Christians. Can you explain how that works? Can you uh, believe that Christ rose from the dead and not become a Christian? 
I, I, I would question whether that's real, genuine belief. Um, I think that, uh, obviously, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him, right? So did everyone that Jesus appeared to come to faith in Christ? Well, there were many that testified, more than 500 that are listed in this pastor, passage in, in, in the section that we're going to get to probably in the weeks to come. Uh, so, but um, when, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that... Um, Yeah, I would say if you really believed that Christ rose from the grave, I mean, wouldn't you believe his message? You know, I'm sure there are some Muslims out there who don't. But, you know, you can, you can go to, um, it, you know, sacred graves of every Islamic leader, including the founder, and the graves are still there. So I don't, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me that they would really believe in a resurrected. And, and most Muslims would say that he wasn't God. He was just a man. So, For example, like most Catholics would, would absolutely affirm Christ as the dead, but yeah. they would deny the gospel and deny that he saved. Yeah, yeah. So it's true. You have Catholics who believe, uh, who would give assent to the resurrection, but they would not... Um, they don't believe the true gospel because they believe a gospel of works. So they believe the, a false gospel. Um, and I think uh, this is why I think we're, it's important for us to look at Paul's argument. And that is he's, he's looking at from the sense of he's speaking out against those who deny the resurrection. And so maybe it's better for me to say everyone who denies the resurrection is not a Christian. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yes. Um, so if you're saying someone is an atheist and they understand how a resurrection could work, but they're not convicted by it, I think the first place to go is that nobody is really an atheist. Nobody really does not believe. They're just suppressing the truth down in unrighteousness. Uh, Romans chapter 1, if you look at um, Romans chapter 1, it says... Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. Verse 19, we have, verse 20, we have external evidence through general revelation, through creation. Verse 19 of Romans 1, we have internal evidence. God, in their heart of hearts, they know there must be a God. And so, verse 18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. One of my favorite illustrations when I think of that verse is a, a little boy who uh, uh, was supposed to be in bed, and he has a puppy, and the puppy's not supposed to be in the house, and they hear all this noise going on in the room, so they knock on the door, and they say to the boy, uh, is there a puppy in your room? And he says, no, and they hear all this clamoring. And so the parents, who obviously give him too much privacy, open the door, and uh, he's sitting on his toy chest, 
and this giant dog is, is in there, and it's pushing up on the lid. And they said, are you sure the dog's not in here? And they're like, no, no, the dog's not in here. What is he doing? He's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He knows it. They know it. Everybody knows it. And that's what's going on when somebody says, I'm an atheist. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's their sin that they don't want to give up. That's why they don't respond well to you when you talk about the resurrection. That's why they would deny the resurrection. When you say you're a preacher or you're a Christian, they're hoping you're a fake Christian because if you're a true Christian, you believe in that we should not suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that at all. Okay, yes. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Okay, so... Okay, let, let, me, let, me try and, let me try and answer your question because I think your question is you attend a Messianic Jewish temple or, or, or a Messianic Jewish society on Sabbath, on Saturday, and they're not observant Jews. And I was very careful to use the word observant Jews because an observant Jew is different in that they, they observe the Sabbath in a way, and that's the term that they use to describe themselves. Uh, they observe the Sabbath in a... Uh, according to sort of a, a certain tradition, okay? However, a Messianic Jew, and, and see, in the early church, you had the same situation because you had those who were Jewish who came to faith in Christ, and you had those who were pagan, like the Corinthians, who were never Jewish, and they came to faith in Christ. And so some of the Jews who had grown up observing the Sabbath and the Old Testament, number four on the Ten Commandments, keep the Sabbath, right? Right? So they were keeping the Sabbath. And so some of them were going to the temple on Saturday uh, and, and, and sharing Christ, unless they were kicked out of the temple, which many of them were. Paul didn't seem to last very long. So, so, uh, but, but, but there were those who observed the Sabbath even after they were kicked out of the temple. Okay, They observed it in the same way that they had before because it was rest. But they understood that that rest is Christ and that Christ is the Messiah, those who were in the church. Okay? But there were pagans in the church, like the Corinthians, many of them, who never observed the Sabbath. So now do they need to go and, and, and have the same kind of rest as the Jews had to in the Old Covenant? And Paul deals with that in Colossians 2, verse 19. 
And he says this, verse 16, sorry. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Verse 17 of of Colossians 2, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And in other words, uh, in, in, in Romans 14, he deals with the same issue because this was an issue in the early church. Romans 14 says that um, uh, verse 9 and 10, for to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the, the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or why again do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the uh, judgment seat of God. Uh, that's not the verse I was looking for. Oh, verse 6. Uh, verse 5. One person observe, regards one day above another uh, Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats eats not for the Lord. He does not eat and gives thanks to God. And what I was trying to get at when I was talking about discontinuity and continuity is that uh, that most Christians today... So the, the principle to the early church was, hey, you want to observe the Sabbath? You grew up with that? Fine, you have the freedom to do that. But don't think that everyone has to do that because those who didn't grow up that way, they don't have to do that. They're not. So I'm, yeah, and, and I don't either. But, but there's another issue going on. Right. Yeah, and what I was getting at when I was talking about discontinuity was not, I didn't have uh, Messianic Jews in mind. What I was thinking of is that there are those who believe that there's more continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament, and the covenant theologians, uh, many of whom are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we love them, but they believe that Sunday is the new Sabbath, and that Sunday has shifted over, and they're called Sunday Sabbatarians. And I don't see that. But my point was, my point was that if someone will go to such great lengths as to not to turn on an oven on the Sabbath, shouldn't we be thinking about the resurrection who believe in it on the Lord's day? Shouldn't we be thinking about that? Everything in their lifestyle helps them to focus on rest. We know where the rest is found and the rest is manifest in Christ. And so uh, I don't feel the conviction that I need to rest on the Sabbath day. I think rest is a good thing. I think if I'm guilty of anything, I rest too much. All right? There are those who... who, who, who um, yeah, so, so I think the principle of rest is great. I'm not going to talk about other people. Uh, but I, ho- I hope that's clear. My whole point was not to pigeonhole a certain group and say, well, they, they do this, so they must not open their refrigerator. No, I'm saying that there are people who go to extreme lengths, and thanks for helping me clarify that, 
What kind of lengths do we do to celebrate the resurrection? How much is it on our mind? How much is it on our thought? And I think that's one of the benefits we have. Yes, question. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say some things that might think you should run and go tell John MacArthur. So I don't, I don't know. So this is uh, this this may blow your mind, but but I would say first of all, first of all, Sunday morning begins when Saturday, Saturday night. That's right. So the 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 fact that we're up. You got it, right? So the fact that we're up late watching movies till all hours of the night on Saturday night and think that we're going to get up and and think about the resurrection on Sunday, it just is not going to happen. So be intentional about your sleep and your family and this sort of thing. And then I would say, make it fun. I mean, when your kids are young, like you've got like what, you know, four under, under four or something like that, right? Three under, three under four? Yeah, okay, so, well, your husband too, right? So, uh, but, so what, what I'm saying is, get them up. Christ is risen. What? Yes, he's alive. Is it Easter? It's Sunday, you know? I don't care, you know, plan little hunts throughout the house, not just looking for your Bible, but, but, but plan Plan, I mean, put, put, you know, do whatever you can to, uh, you know, in South Africa, they have hot cross buns. You know, those are their, their buns with little crosses on them. And you eat them at Easter time. Have them every Sunday. I mean, I'm just saying that if we believe this, let's talk about it. Can you believe he died and rose again? I'm going to give you a sneak peek to next week. We've got two minutes. Just take a look. I just want to show you something. Uh, verse 3 And verse 4, Christ died, middle of verse 3, active, it's it's the active voice. So he was involved in that. He did that. He was buried, passive voice. Somebody else buried him. He didn't bury himself, right? He was put in the tomb, okay? He was raised, perfect passive. That's the, the perfect tense tells us completed past action, but the emphasis is not on the past action. It is on the present. So when I say he's erased, you know what I'm trying to put an emphasis on when I say it in the perfect tense? He's alive. He's alive. And keeping that in our mind should affect us, help us to live differently. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for uh, the joy of being able to Uh, come to your word and study. We thank you for this chapter that Paul wrote for such a crucial issue in that church, and I pray that it will affect our lives and that that people will be drawn to Christ. We pray for those who have heard this message who may be saying to themselves, I don't think I'm a true Christian. I don't think there's been a real change. I don't think I've ever really given my life to Christ. I'm not sure I've really trusted in Christ's work and had a hope in his resurrection that that somehow I would be raised from the dead. I uh, I, I've never really given my life to Christ. I've been living for myself, myself and I just pray, Lord, if, if that person it, it identifies that, that they would repent this day, fall to their knees, cry out to you, ask you to save them, that their heart would be changed, 
and that there would be significant change, a long-lasting change, an eternal change, and that they would know you. So we commit this time to you. We thank you for the fellowship we have in this group. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.